My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Uh, I feel very important behind this thing here. Um, now, with respect to the seating, the people on this side of the room and the people on that side of the room can stare at the people in the middle of the room. Um, okay, this is, I don't know who to talk to. I'm in a Jewish temple, I'm sounding Jewish. I'm here to All right, we'll talk. Uh, my name is Peter Recovered Alcoholic. Uh, grateful to be here, and uh, thank you guys for having me um, share my experience, strength, and hope on this work. Um, the work out of the big book and where it's taken me and where I've landed so far and what my current experience is. Um, God separated me from alcohol June 23rd, 1988, and what I look like then uh, internally, what I look like now internally is completely different. Um, externally, I've changed a whole bunch too. Uh, aged and um, have been beat up in recovery a few times and um, gotten a whole bunch more gray hair. Um, but um, I've been able to take care of myself in the 25 years or so that I'm sober. And uh, it's interesting, I see occasionally some folks um, online or some folks I run into who um, are living a civilian life who are my age, and they look a lot older. And there's something about Alcoholics Anonymous, because I've spoken to many over the years, including my teachers who were, you know, in their 70s in Alcoholics Anonymous and living this life, and there's something very youthful about us something very spirited about us. And uh, it all comes from what's going on in the inside that manifests outward. On June 23rd, 1988, when God separated me from booze uh, and some other things, uh, mostly booze, um, I looked and felt like a man of 100 years old. And if I live to be 100, I'll never be as old as the day I walked into AA. Things were certainly different. My conceptions, perceptions about life, about God, about Alcoholics Anonymous, can I stay sober? The voice in the head was always telling me, who are you kidding? You'll never, you, you'll never amount to anything. Uh, you'll never stay sober. Let's get drunk and get it over with. And that has changed dramatically because that voice doesn't talk to me like it used to, but it does talk occasionally. A few weeks ago, I talked about this image we try to keep. The, the first is the image for the masses, the, the image I want to show everyone, how I'm doing. Let everyone know I'm praying. Let everyone know I'm spiritual. Let everyone know I dress nice. Let everyone know that I'm okay. And I do that because I'm really not okay on the inside. And it seems like the more facade we put out there, it usually determines how insecure I am, really am. And then there's this other image, the, the voice we play to that tells us uh, we're no good. And we play to the voice in the head and we, we, we try to overcompensate because a voice in the head tells me I'm, I'm nothing. I'm still a drunk. I'm still a bum. And it goes on and on. Who are you kidding? And so what I would tend to do, many of us tend to do, is go out there and take the world by storm. Make lots of money. Buy the best clothes. Buy the biggest car. Do all these external things. And really what I'm dressing up is something that's very broken. And no matter how much I put on it, no matter how much stuff I accumulate, I still feel empty at the end of the day when I put my head on the pillow. And something happens in the spiritual transformation, not education, but the spiritual transformation that we don't need much. Through adversity, we learn to let go of the things we thought we needed to be happy. And sometimes when we're in Alcoholics Anonymous and we're growing and understanding and effectiveness, we are put to the grindstone many times. Some people will call it tested. Some people will call it spiritual growth. I don't believe in God testing me. If you do, that's great. I just think we meet life as it is. And we find out we can no longer live life on life's terms. We fail miserably. And it's the crossroads, and I've had many crossroads where, am I going to surrender to God or not? What happens is when the external world looks good, we take credit for it, and really what it does is throw me into believing self-reliance work. I'm a man's man. I've made my mark. And it's all false. It's all built on, like, on, on very weak legs. Because as soon as a thunderbolt hits, I have no way to turn. Remove something from the external world, and I'm down on my knees again wondering what happened. And what, happens, what has happened for me is as my external world collapsed in, in recovery, I found myself being driven back to God. And it, I came to a, a very uh, a clear, uh, rude awakening realization that no matter what the outside world looks like, 
I'm still broken on the inside, and that's where the repair has to be done. And the only way I'm going to get repaired on the inside is with the touch of God's hand. In his time, in his way, and it's none of my business what he's going to make me into, where he's going to lead me, where my mission is. None of my business. My business is to surrender to my, at my altar and say, okay, I'm ready. Wherever it goes, it goes. It has to be better than what I've done. Very often people ask me, why do you say the Lord's Prayer when we do the Lord's Prayer? You don't say it with everyone else. Oh, I'm saying the Lord's Prayer. But that's between me and God. There's something that has resonated with me from some from another book that I don't need to prove to anyone I'm praying. It's nice to pray in unison and out loud. There's power in that. But I don't need to do that. And just as for me to show you I'm praying or you I'm praying, look at me, I'm praying the Lord's Prayer. I'm Moses. This is between me and my creator. He knows I'm praying three times a day. He knows the work I do. So I keep it between he and I because that is the relationship at the end of the day between you and God, not you, the masses, and God. We came here alone. We're going out alone. How am I doing in the middle? Is God, am I practicing fidelity God? Is God like on the sidelines and when I need him, I turn to God and I surrender? Oh God, I need you. And soon as I get some juice back, now God comes third or fourth on the list. Or is it the most important thing in my life? Most important relation, most important event in my life is everything to do with God. Now, if you're new, group of drunks for good only direction is good enough. Our own conception of books is no matter how limited was sufficient to make the approach that God doesn't make too hard terms. So AA has been very wise. They, 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 they encourage us to go back to our religious communities in step 11. But they know at the beginning if they threw religion out, they lose half of us. So whatever our conception is, no matter how limited, it's sufficient to make the approach. Group of drunks for good early direction. When I was new, I would sit next to the old timers. They were my higher power. It was tangible. And somewhere there's a crossover, there's a transformation where we still love the sacredness of AA. We still look to sit next to another drunk, a rotten cup of coffee in an old, ugly basement. And for an AA meeting, is the best place I can be, sitting around some, some old timers. And I still love that. I still worship my fellowship. But I go home with me. I wake up with me. I go to work with me. I'm around me all day long. I can't get away from me. Well, how am I doing when I'm in my own company? And I found that going to AA meetings is a band-aid on an open wound, but doesn't treat that brokenness. We all got that it hurts somewhere, every one of us. We all got that where does it hurt, and we can list a whole bunch of things. Some of us will swallow hard when the question is asked, where does it hurt? And we could be sitting in AA for a long time, and we still got that piece of it hurts, and it's never been remedied, it's never been reconciled, never been healed. Because I tried, we tried lots of other things to get the healing, and we, and we rarely turn back to God. In fact, we treat humans like God and God like a human. I'll turn to the meeting, I'll turn to my sponsor, all good things. I'll turn to a new job, make more money, all good things. Because I really don't believe God is going to heal it. And my turning to God is like kind of skepticism and doubt. Now, if you knew that's okay, if you're around here a while, how come? And one of the neat things that this work's going to do, and we'll find out more as we, as we sit in step five and, and deliver our fourth step, we find out what God is by finding out what God is not. We find out who we be by finding out who we are not. It's a process of removal that this, 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 this 12 steps does. There's no addition in the 12 steps in my experience. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought I had to acquire stuff and get stuff. First, I had to get the superstar sponsor. That was number one. So I can tell you, Joe Blow's my sponsor, so you think I'm great. That's playing to the crowd again. I need someone else to validate me. And it's interesting. I went to a couple of stars in, when I was in Brooklyn, a couple of the gurus, and all of them refused me. They were too busy. They didn't want to. It was a lot of window dressing with some of these men. They'd sound great at the podium. But during the business meeting or you see them out in the street, they, they didn't look like that. And God kept getting in my own way to prevent me from hurting myself some more. So the, the few superstars in AA went to, God said no. And then one night I was given a talk and I'm praying, God, please show me a teaching. I'm praying. And this guy gives a talk and that voice said, now go ask him. And he was brutal. He was not a star. He was, he was like a, a grumpy AA guy. 
The reason why he was grumpy, because he was fed up with the middle of the road AA. He couldn't believe he walked into an AA meeting and hear people say, at a big book workshop, don't drink and go to meetings. He had it up to here. And he voiced his opinion. And that's the teacher I got. He didn't care about my feelings. He didn't care about my issues. He didn't care about my dysfunctional family. He cared about one thing. Peter Marinelli, you're dying. God gave me you to save. And that's what he did. And he was one of the first men that showed me we can read this book all day long. I can study the big book all day long. I know some guys in AA or like big book lawyers. They will tell you where the commas are, where the periods are. They will tell you everything. They know what Bill Wilson drank in 1939, for, you know, in the afternoon. I mean, they know everything. You don't want to break bread with these folks. Because when they get out there, they're womanizing, they're lying, cheating, and stealing. I sponsored a few like that. But he talked about having the transformation that the information in his book gives us. And we know who we are. We know who we are. We can play the AA game, but we know who we are once we leave. Am I in contact with my sponsor regularly? Or do I have a sponsor name only? Am I doing what the book asks me to do with respect to inventory and prayer meditation? Sponsoring other people? Am I currently living in all three sides of the triangle? We need to get the ground rules right before we even start. Am I clear that I have that all my reservations have been taken from me? No lurking notion that somehow someday I'll be immune to booze. Am I down on my knees and completely broken? That's a great place to start. That's where I started. I was in serious trouble when I got here in 1988. So when it gave me the considerations in step one, it was a little bit of ed education, but more of a transformation for me, realizing now I know what's wrong with me. I can't fix anything, let alone me. And regardless of how good it looks out there, I'm still going to drink. I'm going to drink if I hit Powerball. I'm going to drink if I'm homeless. I'm drinking. That's what I do. Even right now, tonight, that's what I do. I drink. And the only thing that's going to prevent me from that is God, who will eventually kind of pluck out that little piece that says it's okay to drink. There's a healing that goes on. There's metanoia, where it's all poured out. There's a purging with a depth of self. And what, what we get is a renewal, a God mind, where I'm now seeing and hearing and speaking with God's words, God's eyes, God's ears, which means who I be is completely different. It's a new person. I can't tolerate the old Peter anymore. Even my early years in AA when I was doing okay, I look back and I see how deaf, dumb, and blind I was to so many things. What relationships should be like. I had it mixed up what a friend is and what an acquaintance is. I thought if you said hello to me, we're friends. <laughs> because I was so insecure about me and such low self-esteem and so broken, somebody validate me. Not the beginning, that's the way it is because we are in serious trouble when we get here. Some of us don't realize how serious but if I'm around here a little while and I've been exposed to all this information and I'm still twisted up, no crime in that, but why? Because there's no need for it. Not an alcoholic synonymous. And the neat thing that this has done is driven me further into God. It seems like in my life in recovery, when things got really bad, when things were completely falling apart, my, the, the instinct, the intuitiveness was just to go back to God one more time. Thank God I went back to God one more time rather than trying another avenue to fix myself. And I got, I, I've shared this many times, I like nice things. I will never deny that. I like nice things. But the difference is I don't need nice things anymore. I want a safe home, I want a loving relationship, and I want to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't need to speak. I know some folks who need to speak. I don't need to speak at a podium. If God says your career at speaking is done, I'd be okay sitting there listening to someone else because I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm just glad that he's taken all the deceitfulness and dishonesty and the treachery that I, and the hate that I used to walk around with and given me something that felt very vulnerable at the beginning that was compassion and love, tolerance for others, acceptance of others. Right? Trying to understand someone who is sick and suffering rather than character assassinating them. That's vulnerability, that's scary. Love is scary. Compassion is scary. But it's the things that God gave me and you when we first got here. Not to AA, when we were first born. You look at a newborn, they have love and compassion. They don't care what you dress like. They don't care if you're heavy, skinny, short, tall, black, white. They don't care. Just love me. I'll love you back. Unconditional. We can learn more from watching a two-year-old than we can people in AA 40 years sober. 
Most of us are like, I love you unconditionally on the conditions you meet all my conditions. <laughs> no, that's marriage. Hold it. That's marriage. <laughs> I began this work really out of desperation uh, when I got back from Minnesota. Um, after six months of being in AA, I was, I was still very sick. I had a little education, a little bit of a transformation, enough to keep my head above water, but I was lacking a lot. I was missing a lot, and I thought I had to acquire things. I thought I had to go out there and make money like a man's supposed to be rich, man's supposed to have power, man's supposed to have control, fear nothing. And I found that I was doing, I had none of it. I had no money. I couldn't get a good job. I was afraid of everything. I'm not a fighter. What do I do? I'm afraid to be in relationships. I'm failing miserably as a man. And God was just keeping me right size. And so instead of acquiring things, some wonderful people in AA says, you need to go in. And in the process of going in, everything gets removed. It's subtraction, never addition on this path. Take a look at the steps. Step one gets me really clear that anything I do blows up. Self-reliance doesn't work. Anything I try to control or, or shape or form or manipulate will blow up. And usually means I'm going to drink at some point over because I'm an alcoholic. Step one says I'm drinking. I will mismanage the most precious gift on my own power. God will give me a wonderful relationship and I will screw that up. Not because I'm an evil person, because I just don't see the world the way God does. And when we have a transformation, we start little by slowly to see things a little bit different, perhaps with God's eyes. And we start to love and appreciate simple things. Like waking up on a Sunday morning and having breakfast. Because I remember waking up on Sunday morning very sick with no money and hadn't eaten in a couple of days. I say, thank you, God, for some breakfast. Thank you, God, for a fresh cup of coffee. Thank you, God, I'm about to take a shower and clean myself. And I slept in a bed that's clean next to someone I know. <laughs> that stuff is very clear to me. And as I stopped moving through this process, God kept removing it. He would give me some things that were always present and remove everything I thought I needed. Through adversity, we learned to let go of the things we thought we needed to be happy. All the things I thought made a man were removed. All the things I thought were God were not God. In fact, even now, anything I come with my mind and, and think is God is not God because it's coming from my mind. This great power can only be experienced, and we will experience it in abundance. We will experience lots of God. But anything my mind tells me, this is God, this is not God, has only come from my mind, so it's wrong. I mean, I grew up, God is a white guy with gray hair, with a beard, and lives in a cloud somewhere. God couldn't be any other color than white. I don't even know if God has a color. I don't even know. But we can experience his love and his mercy, his compassion. We'll find out when we cross over. So the process of recovery is always about removal, never addition, it's subtraction all the time. That doesn't feel good. That's when we start to run. Soon as things start to get removed from me, things I thought I needed, thought things I wanted, things I'll hold on to, and my wants get dressed up as needs all the time, that stuff starts to happen, usually in step four, when we're taking stock of ourselves. And we're doing one, two, and three, and our sponsor is directing and guiding us, saying, stay away from this, you need to do more of that. We don't like to do that. It's removal, and we feel really sick about it. We feel like we're dying because the ego is getting grinded into dust. And it isn't until we start to experience a little bit of humility that I get and you get to realize how much ego-driven we were. When we start to experience some ease and comfort, we realize, even in sobriety, how much disease and discomfort we're walking around with. When the voices in the head finally shut down, even for five minutes, we realize we've been entertaining Yankee Stadium. Thousand voices running around the head, and we entertain all of them. It would be as if all of you started talking to me right now at once, ask, answering, ask me questions, and I'm trying to answer everyone at the same time and get into a deep conversation with you while he's asking me questions, she's asking me questions, they're criticizing me, I'm arguing with everyone. That's madness. You ever go, sometimes you see these less fortunate people who are walking down the street talking to the voices, they're arguing, and we say, wow, they're nuts. We do the same thing. It's inside. We're not going to yell out voices. We're arguing and cursing on the way here. 
Who drove to this meeting alone tonight? Show of hands. How many people drove? Okay, every one of you guys are lying. I'm going to tell you why. If you think about, just for a second, reflect on the drive over here. How many people were you guys talking to in your car when you were the only one in the car? Right? Talking to the ex-wife, the future ex-wife. The mother-in-law. That's always a good one. Right? Just arguing. Maybe things from 20 years ago. And you go back and forth and you argue with these people in the car. There's no one in the car. Now, when you go back in the car, guess who's waiting for you? All those people. So when we get just a little bit of quiet, a little bit of stillness, we realize how much activity we got going on. That's why when you ask an alcoholic, how are you doing? He says, oh, I'm tired. Yeah, because you've been talking to 4,000 people all day long. All day long. It doesn't stop. So step two, I looked at this, this, this pointed to the solution that this power is going to give me right-mindedness, wholeness of mind, truth, sanity, where the very things I had to run to are the things I'm repelled by now. I'm not doing that. I'm looking at life truthfully. That that isn't always pleasant. Waking up is a wonderful thing, but on the way, it'll annoy us. It'll get us uncomfortable. It will disturb us. The process of recovery is a disturbing one. Unless we're a sociopath, it doesn't feel good. And having to, to know that I need, I must surrender everything to this power, we turn all things into the Father of light presides over us all. We must be rid of self, my book tells me. Self-reliance doesn't work. Over and over and over again, my book tells us, self don't work, go to God. That's a bitter pill for some of us to swallow. But once we start to do that, do that, we start to experience this power as something happens. We realize how sound asleep we were in Alcoholics Anonymous. So do I want to go? Yes. And I make a decision in three. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Our third step decision. And that's all it is, is a decision. That I'm willing to live on someone else's, uh, uh, by someone else's rules. Am I willing to live along the lines of someone else's rules and not mine anymore? Because that's what step three is telling us. I'm going to get out of the driver's seat and God's going to drive. And I can never put my hands back on a wheel again unless I want to crash. Am I willing to play by someone else's rules? Am I willing to live on terms other than my own? It's an easy answer if we think back to, based on my experience, how's that been working for me? How have I been doing playing by my rules? Because when I play by my rules, you have to follow my rules. Everyone in this room has to follow my rules. And if you don't, I gossip about you. I become resentful. I become afraid of you. And at some point, I need a drink to get away from it all. I'm an alcoholic. Did a searching, fearless, and moral inventory in step four that cannot be accomplished without God's help. I, I shared about step four last week, and I would try to write inventory without prayer, and I find myself struggling, and I was getting sick. I would try to write inventory without prayer, and suddenly I'd become really hungry and had to eat before I write. I would try to write inventory without prayer, and I would be dishonest. I would maybe fall asleep. I'd find other things to do. And I was writing, but I wasn't in. I was marking a little time. Now, because I went through the first three steps in a book, I had a little bit of awakening, just something, some, some, something happening with me, but I knew this was not good. And I called my sponsor, and he read me the riot act over the phone. He was without mercy. I mean, he was brutal. That was how he worked. And he says, your life is none of your business, and you need to go to God to put this stuff on paper, because on your own, we, us, you, can't be searching fearless and moral. Don't even attempt it. And so I surrendered once again, and I asked God to allow me to be searching fearless and moral. And I began to write, and I began to write, and write, and write, and write. And the pen became the spiritual translator. It was just something that was coming out of me that I had no control over. I'd write for an hour, two hours, and three hours, and then I'd stop exhausted and give prayer and go to bed. And I'd stay home from meetings at night because my sponsor said, if you're writing and missing a meeting, that's okay. And I'd missed a couple of meetings during the week, but I'd write my fourth step, and suddenly it was done in like a week and a half. Done. Because I was, I was still in that place that the fire was on my butt. I knew if I relapse, I'm dead. 
And it wasn't even only that. It was the pain and misery that I left behind because I suffer when I'm out there. I go homeless. I panhandle. I don't bathe. I didn't want any of that anymore. So I kept writing. And God kept pushing the pen, and I was done. Now, when I got done with my fifth, uh, fourth step, my sponsor said, okay, we're going to sit for step five. And then suddenly, I wish he would get sick. <laughs> Calling with the flu. That day of the appointment. I didn't want to go. I trusted my sponsor at the beginning. I thought he walked on water. I thought he invented AA. He was a guru to me. Until he said, come to my house Saturday morning, we're going to do our fifth step. Then in my mind, that same mind said, well, who is this guy anyway? <laughs> you don't know him anything. All these AA people want to know your business. Why? Are we, why are you? And sex inventory is not getting. It started. It started. And really out of fear and desperation. I remember uh, 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 I was living with my kid brother. I hit my knees. And off I went to his house. I knocked on the door. And we sat down on the first session was on his couch. And uh, I started reading. I had like five spiral notebooks of a fourth step. I still think back to the work God gave me, the ability to do. It still boggles my mind how I was able to do that kind of work. And I sat with my sponsor. We made some prayer. He had some religious articles out. Uh, we meditated for a few minutes, and he says, off you go. And he said, what's the one thing, before we started, he said, what's the one thing that you don't want to tell me? And I couldn't think of anything until I got to six, sex inventory. There was a whole chapter I didn't want to tell him. And we began. And he had a notepad out. He had a big book out, and he had a pen. And he told me, I only want you to read to me what you put on paper, because that's God-inspired. If you start talking about what you wrote, it's ego-inspired. You're trying to cover your tracks a little bit. Like, this is what we do. Here's an inventory, but let me explain what happened. I'm covering. My ego's breathing again. So I read what was on paper, and so many times I wanted to say, let me explain what happened here. He didn't allow me. Occasionally, he would ask me, okay, tell me about this. But I had to read what was on paper, and that's what I did. And I started purging all this stuff, and he would take some notes. The notes he was taking were the, the, common, the, the common defects that kept switching hats throughout my life. Fear disguised a hundred different ways. Greed disguised a hundred different ways. Hate disguised a hundred different ways. And he would go maybe two-thirds into it and said, I want to show you something. All this stuff was going on at your first page of inventory. We're like, you know, so much later into this book, two-thirds into your inventory. You have the same stuff going on. This is years and years of it. Different people, different places, same you. Is it them or is it you? I got to take stock of me right there. It wasn't the people. Unmanageability is an internal condition, never an external one. Regardless of what you're doing, it may be unacceptable, I may not like it, but it shouldn't disturb me in here. When I'm disturbed in here, it's because there's something wrong in here. Am I in a position of neutrality, safe and protected, regardless of what's going on? Really test our spiritual muscles then. Or do I get disturbed by what everyone does, what everyone says, how they critique me, even constructive criticism? Oh my God, what bondage. And I got to look at that. That wasn't pleasant. And when we got done, he handed me all this information. And I got some instructions what to do. It was a whole bunch of uh, defects of character that kept showing up. And he gave me instructions as to what to do with this work when I got to six and seven. Now, I've been able to go through the work a whole bunch of times. My first... I want to say about 10 years or so in AA, I was one of those folks who went through the steps one time and one time only, and that was the belief system. And some folks still do that, and that, if that works for you, great. I'm not here to cha uh, change you, but I will challenge. I went through the work one time, one time only, and I hit a wall in AA. I was starting to flatline a little bit. I was doing all the work I was asked, but I needed something different. I needed to grow an understanding and effectiveness, and things started to become very mechanical. And I'm wondering what's wrong with me. I start to point fingers. I start to get a little disease and discomfort. Ego is starting to reemerge. When the ego reemerges, it never tells you I'm reemerging. What it does is say they're wrong and you're right. We start to critique people around us, criticize people around us, leave meetings early because I don't like this. Little things were going on. I became restless and discontented. I had a sponsor doing all the work. What's wrong? I needed a new experience. And I met with the greatest teacher in my life, a gentleman from Texas. And the first thing assignment he gave me was something called a lay-aside prayer. 
And that was, God, please let me lay aside everything I think I know about the big book, 12 steps, AA and you, God, for an open mind and new experience. God, please let me see my truth. Soon as I stopped to, if I was, if, if I went to James, say James sponsored me, and we went to his house tonight, and we started the work tonight. Everything I've gotten that God has given me up until tonight now stands in the way of a new experience. So what I need to do is take all of it and put it on another bookshelf and start new, open mind, new experience, lay everything aside. When I get somewhere in 9, 10, 11, and 12, all that will meet me on the back end. But soon as I start to go through the work, it was in the way. And Mark told me we need to work with this lay-aside prayer. Some of us call it the set-aside prayer, and I did. I was just as desperate with about 10 or 11 years sober as I was at day one. Because I wanted and I needed God and I couldn't get that, couldn't get over the wall. I didn't know what to do. What I needed was a new experience, get some new information, revisit step one, touch my current unmanageability, see where I am with God. Am I turning all things into God or the things that are easy to turn to God? What's that look like? Any outstanding amends I haven't made that I still have? All of these pieces of the puzzle. You ever do one of those jigsaw puzzles? They got like a thousand pieces, maybe as big as your fingernail. It's insignificant at the beginning, right? And when you complete the puzzle and you're missing that piece, you go look for the piece because the puzzle's not complete. A little inventory, a little prayer meditation at the beginning says, oh, that's that, what's the big deal? It is a big deal. It is a huge deal. It's all parts of the puzzle that need to be put together. And only God's going to do it. I go through the work with Mark, and uh, I remember I asked him, can you sponsor me? So I've been waiting for you. And I still, till this day, don't know why he said that and what he saw in me. But the eyes of the windows to the soul, he saw something was not right with about 10 or 11 years sober. Something was missing. Not terribly wrong, but not really right. There was pain. There was some suffering. There was that thing that I wasn't addressing. I had been in therapy now for like five, six years by the time I met Mark. I was doing it all, but I hit a wall. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to uncover, discover, and discard these new things that were in my way. Because God will reveal to me. God will reveal to us when his time, when it's right to be revealed. So I couldn't settle on going through the work one time. Now, trust me, when I was sitting in an AA meeting and people would talk about reworking the steps regularly, one through nine, once a year, I had lots of contempt for that. What I had was contempt prior to investigation. How do I know? And we began to work and something electric happened to me in step three. I was in step three. My sponsor called me and I couldn't talk fast enough because something was going on. I didn't know it was God. I just thought I was feeling excited about AA again. He knew it was God. And he says, Peter, you didn't even get to your fourth step. Isn't this great? And he hung up the phone. <laughs> And I blew through my fourth step, and I sat with him in five, and it's the first time I did multiple fifth steps. I had to sit with the, this, this guy, Michael, in Orange, New Jersey, uh, South Orange, New Jersey. And then Mark was in town, and I sat with Mark, and I did multiple fifth steps. Our book says personal persons. And a spiritual law, the more people on this path to know about me, the freer I am. So if I sit with a couple of big book people who understand what I'm about to do here and get it and I share with them, then I go to my sponsor, I'm freer. How free do we want to be? If I'm sitting here in bondage tonight, why don't you want to be free? If I'm experiencing freedom tonight, I like the effect produced by freedom. I want to get more free. I love more booze. I want to get more free. And he was right. And I sat with Mark and I'm one of those guys. I've gone through the work three, four times in one year. Not repeating the same thing over on paper, just new experience, taking a look at things, finding out what amends I didn't, wasn't even aware of that had to be made. And what it does, one through nine clears out self and I get rocketed into 10 and 11 with a new experience, a new state of consciousness in 10 and 11, a deeper level of consciousness. I start to feel that I'm known by my creator. Something happens that words don't, can't really express, but it's a feeling in here. Everything changes. Everything changes. Suddenly you go in your backyard and say, wow, the grass is really green. I never saw it before. I'm married and I have kids. I never knew they were here before. Yeah. Everything changes. And whenever I got disturbed by the information a teacher or a sponsor gave me is because my ego was in the way. And I don't want to admit that. 
I'll find fault with you for telling me what to do. I will criticize you for telling me what to do. I will gossip about you for telling me what to do until I get to the other side and say, thank, thank, thank you for hitting me right here with the truth. So interesting things in step five. just want to go over. It says into action, not into 90 meetings in 90 days. Not into hanging out because I did my four step, into action. So if I go to gym, I have to take some action to get in shape. I can't go to the gym and sit down and smoke a cigar and expect to get in shape. So into action, I need to do some work here. Now the ego wants no part of this fifth step because it knows it's about to commit suicide. The ego wants no part of step five because it knows it's about to die. And the self doesn't want any part of this because it knows it's about to die. Because for me, I've, I've been walking around with this false self and the self that God created. And the false self is dressed up in all external things. The false self doesn't want God. The false self is God. How can I meet God when I'm God? How can I experience God when I'm, I'm God? And the fifth step is about to dismantle the whole thing. Just pull it out, root, root and branch. It says, having made our personal inventory, what shall we do about it? We've been trying to get a new attitude. Different view of God. Not so much contempt. A little bit more enlightened about God. And a new relationship. One that's pure. One that's not blocked. A new relationship. We may have had a relationship. We're going to have a new one. Always new. Always growing. Maybe we had a group of drunks for good only direction. We're going, to, we're going to have no more duality. We're going to experience oneness with God. The great reality deep down within. We're about to step onto a path that's going to bring us and God into oneness. No more separateness. Our book says the great reality is deep down within. We're going about to go in. We're going to touch that. Now, when, my experience is once we get to figuratively touch God, the hand of God, we get ignited. That's why a book refers to us as being on fire. Something has changed once we touch God. And it's about to happen in 5, 6, and 7. Somewhere in there, we will get lit up. And by the time we finish the men's, we are on fire. We're new from the inside out. Eyes are the window to the soul. You will look at someone who's on fire. They don't have to say a word. You just know they're, a God, they're, they're lit up with God. You can see it. The same way like when I would come in and my eyes were dead. They were morbid. There was nothing going on. The flame wasn't turned on. I tried lots of things to get it. Had some instant gratification. Felt really good for a little while. And the next day was the guilt, remorse, and emotional hangover. This is permanent. God is God. And he's given away abundance all the time, pursuing me, pursuing you, pursuing every one of us, because we're all born to be saints. And we keep telling God, call me tomorrow. I'm busy today. And our book says, well, hold on a second. We're going to give you God right now. Are you willing to go to any lens here? Because the road's about to get really, really narrow. It got narrow in four. It's about to get really narrow when I'm about to share with you every. The inner workings of my mind, every nook and cranny about me is about to get unloaded on you. That is a narrow walk and many of us will go away. And I still hope my sponsor would get sick. I would hope my sponsor would go away because I didn't want to go to his house. 25 years later, I do an inventory and about to do a fifth step. I still get squarely on the inside. I still get nervous. I still hope maybe my sponsor will forget. I know it's coming. I know the end result of it. And still... I get uncomfortable because the ego is still breathing just a little bit. Because that guy doesn't want any part of this. We have admitted certain defects, have ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. We put our finger, our finger on the weak items in our personal inventory. These are about to be cast out. We're not gonna, I'm not going to work on my defects of character. I can't work on my defects of character. How can I work on my defects of character? Who's working on them? The same mind that created them. Can't solve a problem with the same broken mind that created it in the first place. So I can't work on my defects. I'm powerless. But I need power. And God will work on them in his time the way he sees fit. If it feels good, it doesn't mean it's good. If it feels bad, it doesn't mean it's bad. Some of the defects of character just need to be tweaked. It's an asset run, run amok. Some things need to be removed. Not for me to judge. Not for me to figure out. My job is to share everything with the sponsor. 
It says this requires action on my part, which when completed will mean that I have admitted to God, to myself, and to another human being, the sponsor, the exact nature of my defects. The bottom of the page, it says, clear-cut warning, if I skip this vital step, I may not overcome drinking. Vital. Life-giving when I do, and life-threatening if I don't, like a vital organ I need, and if it's not there, I die. I may not overcome drinking. The old time used to tell us, do a fifth or drink one. Your choice. It says, having persevered with the rest of the program, we wondered why we fell. The reason is that we never completed our house cleaning. Step five is part of the house cleaning process. It, it, Bill split a lot of the six and seven up, eight and nine up, four and five up. We write and then we go deliver the work. It's two different steps, but it's one movement. When we complete step five, now we've completed the house cleaning. It tells me right there. So if I have a, an inventory, a book says a solitary self-appraisal is insufficient. I can write a beautiful fourth step and not share it anymore. It's just words on paper. And while I'm on that, a fourth step, according to my book, is not an autobiography. That's an exercise in ego and self. That I'm usually not afraid to share to anyone. If I have things on paper that I'm not too thrilled about sharing, probably did some work in that. It's a four-column inventory. Very specific format. Not an autobiography. And I don't need to list the good things I did. My book doesn't tell me to list the good things I did because the good things I did are not going to get me drunk unless I go bragging about them. It's about the things that are blocking me, the obstacles that are blocking me from God. Isn't it interesting that the obstacles get so painful, the defects get so painful that I actually get driven back to God? Sometimes the path of, with obstacles is the path to God. It is the road. The road full of obstacles is the road. I haven't met one person to come into A says it was a blast. I've had a great time, but I figured I'd come to A. <laughs> and I haven't met one person yet who I consider enlightened or gurus in AA who've said the last 20 or 30 or 40 years has been as smooth as anything. Bumps. Life comes at us. How we navigate through it is different. We will be revered and reviled walking around with this book in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know how many meetings I've gone to and put the big book down and the speakers and the people, some of the folks, oh no. And I've taken heat from people listening. And other people say, can you come back to speak? No attachments to any of that. Because I have to get attached to that. That means there's something wrong with me in here. I need to go home and do more work. Hmm? Bottom of page 73, it says. We must be entirely honest with someone if we expect to live long and happily in this world. How long am I going to live? It's up to God. But how am I going to live it? What's my quality of life look like? How well am I? How am I doing? Can I take a poll of people who walk with me and get a good report card? Or I don't want anyone to even answer that question because I know how I am when I'm away from AA. How am I doing when I'm all alone? Fifth, one of the fifths that promises that we could be alone at perfect peace and ease. Can I be alone at perfect peace and ease? Am I up on time to get to work? Am I to bed at a, a decent hour? Do I have a rhythm to my life? Meditating at a certain time, praying at a certain time, eating at a certain time. How am I doing? How's my money life look? Am I responsible with my bills? I don't mean a lot of money. Am I responsible with my bills or I couldn't care? Am I faithful in my relationships? Or she has to be faithful, but I don't. Right. How am I April 15th? How am I going to do on April 15th when tax man comes around? Right. How am I doing? And if I'm still lying, cheating, and stealing, no sin. It just means that I'm still sick. Sin sometimes we look at is falling short, missing the mark. It's the action I'm taking. That doesn't align with God's will. And here comes pain and suffering, not only to me, but to other people. I'm missing the mark. I'm falling asleep. So I do what I want to do. And the ego says, keep doing it. It's okay. And what the great thing that happens, the thing that's happened to me, is as I got through step five and moved through six and seven into amends and got away from that old life, I realized I'm running away from a case of mistaken identity. I thought that that was my life. My ego gave me my identity. Any money I had was my identity. What I drove, what, who I went with, that was my identity. All false 
And the further I get away from that, as self starts to die, I realize what a great thing. I'm running away from a, from a case of mistaken identity to get what God created at the beginning. Broken and all. There's freedom in that. There's great freedom in knowing I will never be perfect unless God says you're going to be perfect. But do I strive every day to know my creator and do his work and align my will with his? Yes. That's a home run for people like us. I'm out of the perfect business. Now I really believe in all our brokenness. If, if God came down from the heavens and walked in this room and went up to one of us and said, listen, I have a special mission for you to do. And to do that mission, you have to be completely perfect, defect-free, perfect, like me. Is it possible? Most of us oh, absolutely not. Then how small is your God? I have, for me, I have to say, well, yeah, it's possible. And we're talking about God. We're talking about the boss here who breathes breath into me to, to live. Of course it's possible. So can he relieve me of my alcoholism and defects of character? In his time, yes. Just relieve me of my alcoholism. It says when we decide who's to hear our story, we waste no time. I have a written inventory prepared for a long talk. I explain to my partner, my sponsor, what I'm about to do. And if they're, they're in this book, they know exactly what we're doing. Most folks in AA know what a fifth step looks like and what they're supposed to be doing. If they're in the big book, they know absolutely what we're about to do. They know how vulnerable. When men come to me, my sponsees, when they come to me, I know they're sick, they're uncomfortable, they're nervous. They start talking about a whole bunch of things right away. You know, trying to delay the whole process. Are you, you're, are you okay today, Pete? You're all right. We can post bonus if you want. You know. Because I do the same thing. They're nervous. And the way my teachers embraced that and didn't criticize me made me comfortable. I do that for the men too. Because I know they're engaged upon a life and death. That's the responsibility that God gave to us. That they're engaged upon a life and death errand. Think about that when we're hearing the fifth step. Our book says it. We're engaged upon a life and death errand. Who does he give it to? Another drunk. And a life and death errand. Another drunk to help us go from here to here. He could have gave it to a lot of other people. He entrusted us with this gift and this gave us this power to take a drunk from death to life. Wow, what an order. We certainly can go through that one. But I better be, I've done my homework. It says we pocket our pride and go to it, illuminating every twisted character, every dark cranny of the past, and we stop there. What follows is the fifth step promises. Up until that point, we're preparing to go in. Now that there's a period, and we go in and we do our fifth step, however long that takes. Sometimes it'll take a few hours. Sometimes it'll take a few days. With me, I have about a two, three, maybe four-hour attention span. Then I go ADD. I can't pay attention. And it's a life and death there, and so I'm not just going to listen to you for the sake of listening to you. I will put, put a lid on it and come back. And James and I, we did it about three or four times together at the time because I, I stopped hearing. So I put a lid on it and come back next time, and we pick it up, and we keep going. And we keep going until we're done. What happens when we're done? This needs to be shed before we wrap. Fifth step promises, which... Might come right after five, might come in six and seven, might come in eight and nine. For me, I had an experience with this stuff in six and seven. It says, once having taken this step, withholding nothing, have I withheld anything? Sometimes we'll get to the car and we'll say, I didn't tell them about that. What I tell the men is this, after they leave my house is, you revealed a lot to me. And what will happen is I call it the boomerang. You throw something out and it comes back to you. You get in your car and as you're driving away, you, your mind's going to say, why'd you say that for? You didn't need to talk about that. That's the only showing up again. One last shot at pulling us down. Pay no attention to that. Maybe there's something we forgot and it just comes to us because the ground is really fertile when we're done with the fifth step. Stuff is starting to pop. Just tell the sponsor, I just remembered something, not purposely forgetting, it just came to me. That's happened too with some men. But assuming we're all clear, it says, once having taken a step withholding nothing, we're delighted. We can look the world in the eye. I used to always look at my shoes all the time. Look the world in the eye. I can be alone in perfect peace and ease. 
Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our creator. Oneness. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. And it might be the infancy of the experience, but it's happening. It's happening. We're new, right here. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly so much for, it's normal to think about a drink because I'm an alcoholic. I don't need to think about drinking anymore. Not if God's done what God's done, and I've been thorough, why would God keep me walking around with a loaded pistol to my head, thinking about drinking? If I think about it long enough, I'm going to get drunk. If I go to the barbershop, hang around long enough, I'm going to get a haircut. But God removes it. It's a great promise. I remember a guy telling me, hey, it's always, it's normal to think about a drink, you're an alcoholic. And my sponsor pointed out, yeah, if you're untreated, but if we're spiritually fit, I don't need to think about drinking unless I'm doing a 12-step call or I'm sponsoring someone. And I want to share my story with them so they identify with me. <laughs> other than that, I'm not walking around thinking about drinking during the day or doing any other, anything else. The feeling that the drink problems disappear will often come strongly. We feel on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe, oneness. I was at a meeting uh, in Brooklyn. Friday night, Bat Beach Group. Finished my fifth step. Got my instructions to six and seven. Everyone's talking about these fifth step promises. I'm just feeling relieved I'm done. Friday night, I'm walking up the steps. I got to the second floor, and boom. When God shows up, God shows up. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. When God shows up, God shows up. It's profound. It's life-changing. It's, it's like the most unexpected transformational event you'll experience. You don't expect God to show up. He just shows up. And I knew something was going on, but I didn't know it was this. And I spoke to a senior member in the group who's a big book person. I said, here's what's going on. He said, you need to call your sponsor, but I'll tell you what's going on. God's going on. That's what's going on. It was euphoric. Everything was right. Everything was right in my world that night. I don't remember the meeting till this day. Every Friday night I was there. I was lit up. It happened in 6 and 7, which rocketed me into 8 and 9, which pushed me into 10 and 11, which allowed me to be of service to others, which the whole thing's all about anyway. Once we get God... The lost sheep, bring him back. The lost sheep, bring him back. Bring our children, bring God's children back to God. I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing here. There's many of them, maybe in this room. I can't transmit something I haven't gotten. I will what I do. Untreated alcoholism or an awakened spirit. And when we're awake, we don't have to say much. What we're doing speaks so loud, you can't hear a word we're saying. Huh? That's all I got. Peace.